We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 26 tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 26. And uh, I guess I should welcome you all. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for coming out on a Thursday night. And to those uh, watching on live stream, hello. And uh, we hope, I pray, uh, I'd like to actually open in prayer. Um, I really believe that God's word is true, amen, in every regard. And uh, I really believe it's true when it describes me as a lump of clay and the Lord as the faithful potter who shapes us and grows us and like a good potter holds us close while he works on us. And that even when he finds blemishes, uh, doesn't cast us aside, but continues to work and shape us. So um, I have nothing of value to share in this uh, world on this Thursday night to you. Uh, but I know the Lord does. <clears throat> and somehow my prayer is that uh, he would use this lump of clay to speak to some fellow lumps of clay and that he would be honored tonight, teach us a few really cool things from his word tonight. Um, I would just like to say before I pray, if you have any questions tonight, I kind of, well, I just love kind of a casual feel. We're just family here. So if you have a question or a thought, uh, I promise you I'm not afraid to say I don't know. Um, I don't believe I have all the answers, but it is encouraging uh, to learn together. So uh, thank you so much for coming. I, I guess I'd like to, before I pray, also ask if, if any of you tonight <clears throat> have any prayer requests. Um, uh, maybe as we pray, some requests come to mind. Uh, I would like you to request that you pray one prayer that as I pray that the Lord, you just say, Lord, capture my heart tonight. Capture my mind. Bring your word alive to me tonight. I would like to, uh, I think we should pray for families affected by the tragedy south of us tonight. Uh, just, just so horrible, this building that's collapsed. Um, people's lives have been lost uh, Still searching for, for missing people. Uh, what a tragedy overnight. I pray for the church uh, that is in that area, that God's people would be used somehow to bring comfort. And what a, what a horrible day those families have endured a night. Well, thank you for coming. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, <clears throat> your eternal, unchanging word. I pray somehow uh, you would get me right out of the way real quickly. You would help us as we journey and learn together. <clears throat> I lift up my brothers and sisters here in the room tonight, that you would be their encourager, that you, your presence would just be uh, close here tonight. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would reveal your truth to them. You, you know each story represented. Uh, each heart and life here, I pray that you would bring your word alive to them somehow tonight. We pray for families that have been devastated uh, overnight in this building and tower collapse. Uh, we, pray, we pray for families that are suffering right now. Um, just hearing one story on the way here even that this 10-year-old boy that was found alive but 
his family was not. Um, I, uh, I just pray somehow in the name of Jesus, oh Lord, you bring comfort to this little boy uh, and others that are suffering. I pray for uh, first responders, rescuers, uh, search and rescue that are still at work. Uh, Lord, I pray that even you could visit that place that there are folks that are, that are alive, that somehow, Father, they could just be led to hear them, to get to them. Oh, we just pray your mercy would rain down upon this, this whole situation. Thank you for a chance to be together tonight. It just reminds us, I guess, Lord, when we see events today, to just treasure every moment we're given and to treasure moments that we have with each other. So I want to say thank you. Thanks for the chance to be together tonight. In Jesus' name, and together we all say amen. 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 Well, you know this. You don't have to really look at the news too much to see that road rage incidents are on a crazy pace. They're rising uh, in our country, and many of them have even been in our county and even in our town. Uh, people uh, cut off each other on the highway or get angry at someone, and suddenly the severity seems to rise real quickly where there are hand gestures or driving dangerously or maybe even drawing weapons, and, and whole lives are just being devastated by road rage incidents. In the moment, getting angry, making a decision, being impulsive, and losing all control. Uh, it rises up something in us when someone wrongs us on the road. Maybe we've all been somewhat guilty of, man, what a jerk. How could you do that? Or maybe speed up a little bit. Boy, you ought to see my wife Sherry. She gets hot under the collar. The other day we were driving the intersection at 58th and a young lady driving an SUV coasted through the intersection like this the entire time. The entire intersection. And she, Sherry's on the window. Hey, hey, trying to get her attention. Not to express anger or gesture, but to kind of scold her like a mom would, I guess, because it was a teenage girl. Uh, when we feel wronged, we often take offense. And I want to slow that phrase down. We literally take offense into our minds, into our hearts. We invite it in. Uh, we make comments. We make judgments. We assert our right to respond. We make us the focus really fast. And if we're not careful, even as God's people, sometimes we even push God right out of the driver's seat and out of the room in our lives and say, I'm going to handle this on my own because I'm right, I was wronged, and I have the right to call the shots. It doesn't just happen while driving in our cars. Uh, it happens in our homes, our jobs, our marriages. It happens in today's world a lot online with social media. People offend us. We feel we have to indeed share our opinions, set people straight. Maybe it's our husband, maybe it's our wife, maybe it's our kids. We do it online, we do it in person. When we're wronged and believe that we're right, whew, look out. That can be some defining moments in the life of a human being. Uh, it can be a huge deciding factor in our walk with God. Is it going to be our way or is it going to be God's way? Are we going to take matters into our own hands, take offense, literally, or are we going to leave it up to God? It's certainly true for all of us. Um, it's important to pay attention what God is trying to do in situations that we encounter where we are wronged 
Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's at church. We've certainly seen, uh, we know that just because people are followers of God doesn't mean that they can't get it wrong. So it's true for all of us here tonight and for all of us listening, for any human being seeking to live a life that honors Jesus, pay attention to what God is doing in the seasons of your life when you are wronged. Because he does have something to say and he does have something he wants to do. It's true for all of us. It was certainly true for David. This is just another step tonight in the ongoing uh, shaping of David's heart and David's life that God has been trying to do uh, in this young man as he prepares him for kingship and leadership and doing mighty things for the Lord. And one area tonight that we're going to focus on in this chapter is what does God teach David, reveal to David in a season when he is so very wronged and he was justifiably right and he had a choice to make. Would he let God have his way or would David choose to take matters into his own hands? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26. It's okay, I'm just going to read the chapter. I'll start right with verse 1. Just to set the context a little bit. This is David's final encounter with King Saul. They won't see each other again after this. Uh, Back in chapter 24, a couple of chapters ago, David had spared Saul's life in the cave. Um, We see now that Saul's repentance was not sincere. He's pursuing David again, coming after him, wants to kill him. Last week in chapter 25, we see that God was at work and in another encounter with another evil man, uh, a man named Nabal. David uh, took justifiable offense. He planned some serious revenge, uh, going so far as to saying there's not going to be one person left alive in Nabal's life once I show up with my soldiers. God intervened. He had this meeting or this encounter with Abigail, Nabal's wife. I think it's summed up in 1 Samuel 25, verse 33. David gives praise to the Lord and says, Praise to the Lord, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that God allowed you, Abigail, to meet me on the road because I was about to go kill Nabal and all his men. But because God intervened, he says in verse 33, You kept me from avenging myself with my own hands. He recognized that God was at work preparing him to be a king who could have a clear conscience and didn't have to have that weighing upon his heart and upon his mind. And then God surprised him, as you learned last week, where he gave Abigail to be his wife after that. So that's the context. Uh, He's let Saul live once. He's now encountered another really offensive man named Nabal, and God spared him from killing that man and acting on impulse. And that's where we pick up the story now in chapter 26. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakala, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. 
Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hecla, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down and into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. <clears throat> no one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die, because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And David added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go, serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. <clears throat> then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David, 
You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Verses 1 through 5 are the setting, the situation. A couple of similarities exist here uh, from previous chapters, uh, especially in the first couple of verses. You see the same people in the same place doing the same thing. The same people were this people group called the Ziphites. Uh, they lived in the area. They were looking to get in good standing with King Saul, and they betrayed David. They did the same thing back in chapter 23, verse 19. They betrayed where David and his men were hiding. Same place. David is hiding with his men, we're told, on this hill, this, this really easy place that has good uh, uh, things to hide fugitives for them to easily hide and to have an encampment, a secure place that has good advantage point of looking down called Hakala, and they're hiding there. So Saul gets wind from the Ziphites, we're told, where David and his army are hiding, and he heads out to the desert of Ziph with 3,000, as the scripture says, chosen men, and he sets up camp. A chosen men there uh, translates highly skilled warriors. So it's important to pay attention. These were, in essence, the special forces of Saul's army. They were highly skilled, and they were on the hunt. Uh, they weren't coming out to uh, just say hello to David. They had a mission, and they were chosen for it. Uh, David has a vantage point. On verse 3, we're told that he saw that Saul had followed him. And he sends out scouts in verse 4 to learn that Saul himself, along with his army, had indeed arrived. I want to focus on that phrase. David wanted to know for sure that Saul himself had arrived, not just Saul's army and special forces, but that Saul himself had arrived. Remember at this point, Saul has 3,000 highly skilled warriors. David has 600 men with him. Uh, the numbers are pretty, pretty crazy outnumbered at this point. So wisdom and strategy are really going to be needed uh, David indeed was a skilled warrior himself, but he was also a skilled battle leader, and he did practice strategy often, and this is certainly part of it. It's interesting that in verse 5, David himself goes to the place where Saul had camped for the night. He could have sent a small battalion of soldiers. He could have sent 10 men, come back and report to me if you see Saul. But just like David had learned that Saul himself was present, David himself went down to see Saul. It must have been really late. They're all asleep by the time that he reaches the camp. It takes a while to set up camp for 3,000 men. It's kind of cool here that the Hebrew word is kind of a rare word that's used for camp here. Magal, M-A-G-A-L, Magal. Now, in the English language, we translate it as that simple word, camp. But it was also used way back in chapter 17, verse 20, when David reached the camp to bring supplies to his older brothers and the soldiers among the Israelite army who were facing that big battle that day, remember, against the Philistines. 
and it was in the Magal, in that camp area, where David would face and slay Goliath. So our word for Magal is simple, camp, but literally it means wagon wheel tracks. What's really neat to, to understand is, is the word here is referring to the supply wagon tracks that would be made around the perimeter of a camp as they would set up weapons, deliver supplies, uh, and the perimeter would just be surrounded uh, most often, especially in soil or if there had been rains and deep wagon uh, pathways and ruts that had been formed. Uh, in Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm that is familiar to, to so many of us, right? the Lord is my shepherd, etc. Uh, David uses that word magal in a metaphorical sense. You lead me in wagon paths and wagon trails of righteousness for your namesake. They're, they're well marked. I can see them. I can follow them. I don't have to guess where the trails are where you're trying to lead me. You make them clear for righteousness sake. So I kind of just want you to picture this. When he arrived at the camp, it might be easy to think this was a little campsite with an electric hookup. There's enough room with a picnic table, a little fire pit, and a place for your 10-man tent. Uh, but you've got to think of this as quite an expansive camp that they've arrived upon in the middle of the night. All right? It's a perimeter set up in a big circular fashion. So they would have come to the wagon tra uh, trail first, if you will, these wheel ruts that were made. Then there would have been 3,000 soldiers all camped around the center of the camp. In the middle was Abner, the commander of the army, and that was also Saul's cousin. And then lying there, right there in the middle, with the army completely camped around him, as verse 5 says, is King Saul. So picture that, this huge, expansive circle, huge army, 3,000. And there's King Saul lying right there in the middle. Uh, we're told that he saw, David saw Saul for himself. So I'd like you to imagine his thoughts in that moment. This would be important for us to, to really see how can we relate to what David is going through. He sees Saul for himself. It was very important when the scouts uh, reported back he wanted to know, had Saul definitely arrived? Is he really there? And then he takes uh, initiative on his own, and he goes and he sees Saul. And now he is at the camp. Imagine, what? Saul is here again? I mean, in the cave, he repented. Uh, in verse, chapter 24, verse 17, for instance, Saul said to him, You have treated me well, David, but I have treated you badly. Thank you. Bless you. Please spare my family. Just make me that promise. I'm going to stop this. I, you've treated me so well. I'm so sorry. This won't happen again. So in that moment, running through David's mind is the memories from that cave encounter where he cut off a small piece of his robe and he had the chance, but he still didn't take Saul's life. So in that moment, David, when he sees him for himself, he also realizes that Saul's repentance was fake. It was insincere. It was a show. It's so hard to not want revenge. It's so hard to forgive and to let God be God when someone's repentance is fake. When it's another I'm sorry, but it's empty. 
when it's becoming clear that it's insincere, it's just a show. It is one of the greatest surgeries, I believe, that the Holy Spirit does on the life of a believer to be able to continue in a life that honors Christ in relationships when someone who has wronged us so greatly is demonstrating insincere repentance or putting on a show again. Oh, it's just had to hit David so hard. I think that's why the scripture tells us very clearly for himself he had to see these things. Perhaps in his optimism, wanting to give a guy who had failed him another chance. Saul's got it this time. He won't do this anymore. He said he wouldn't. Boom. There it is right in front of his own eyes again. Camped nearby for one mission only, to take David's life. He's gone back on his word. He's insincere. So David sees this. The reality is right in front of him. He's at the camp. That's the setting. What will David do? Well, in verses 6 through 12, we begin to see David's response in his plan. David asks two men. Uh, did you see who they were in verse 6? Who were the two men that David asked uh, who would go with him down into the camp? Did you see who it was? So Ahimelech, and who was the other one? Abishai. Right, so let's identify them. So this is not Ahimelech the priest, which is mentioned back in chapter 21. Ahimelech seemed to be a common name. This was Ahimelech the Hittite, which if we strain out the context and the history there, uh, most, almost 100% sure scholars are that he would have been a hired mercenary. So he was part of David's men, special forces, if you will, hired by the, king, by the leader David, paid for his services. Uh, Ahimelech may have been a popular name. I don't know about you. Uh, I know some, some folks have that problem. There are lots of Davids, lots of Tims, uh, lots of Mikes. There, I just don't have that problem with my name, with Ralph. <laughs> a lot of the Ralphs I know are, well, they're in nursing homes or they're... Uh, you know, they're just much older than me, but I guess that was mom's wish for me to have a classic name. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, uh, we're, being, we're giving clarity. This is not Ahimelech the priest just from a couple of chapters ago. This is a, a trained warrior. Uh, the other one is Abishai. Right? We're told that this was the son of Zeruiah. Uh, that's David's sister. And so this, this young man, Abishai, was David's nephew. Uh, who will go down into the, into the camp with me to Saul? I find that very powerful. What an invitation. You're standing there at night, perhaps the torchlight, you can see the 3,000 men. You can see all the way in the center is the king. And the answer wasn't, who will go down? With, the question wasn't, who will go with me to the camp? Uh, who will go with me and walk around the outside and let's check out and see what's going on? But it was a direct wow moment. Who will go down with me to Saul? Right in the middle of all the action. A quiet, clandestine approach is going to be needed. I mean, this is, this is Navy SEALs times 100. This is going to have to be really, really uh, sharp and quiet. So the nephew, Abishai, volunteers to go. 
I'll go with you. Um, although it uh, seems to happen quickly in Scripture, we can read a couple of sentences to describe what happened, I think it is important uh, to understand that as they made their way all the way to where Saul and Abner were sleeping, uh, to where that spear was stuck in the ground, uh, it didn't just happen in a few moments. Uh, they are warriors themselves, after all. You know that if you're in the enemy's camp, one thing you do not want to do is to wake up the enemy if they're asleep. You're not going to be uh, moving too fast or with a great amount of noise. So after a period of time, uh, they arrive at the center. They note the spear stuck in the ground by his head. This would have been a, a dual symbol. It was a symbol of authority. The king carried that spear and he carried it strongly. And it was also from a warrior standpoint, it was available at a moment's notice. It wasn't laying off somewhere uh, on the ground. It was there if an attack did happen. And so it was rightly so in the ground next to Saul's head. I think at this point in verse 8, I would say enter stage whisper. You know what a stage whisper is? Uh, my wife has done some community theater, and my little guy, Logan, he's been at Riverside Children's Theater and a couple of musicals or, and plays, and he learned the stage whisper. Well, you're still whispering, but people can hear you. Uh, there are 3,000 highly trained forces asleep on the ground all around you. Uh, maybe they used hand signals a little bit. Maybe we're tempted to think he cupped his hand over David's ear and said, hey. But Abishai sees what's happening, and he proposes something very quickly. So I think it's important. Take notice here what Abishai do does in this setting where both parties know that someone has wronged someone else. And it appears in that moment that action needs to be taken. So take a note of what Abishai does. Uh, kind of description of his response. First of all, in verse 8, uh, we see that he, he acts with urgency. He uses words like today, now, do it now, do it right now, today. This is meant to happen right now at this moment. Urgency. Uh, with not much hesitation, he also seems to be speaking for God. God set this up. He delivered Saul to you. Obviously, God did this. Look at the, the signs of what happened. You're here. I'm here. The spear is here. The king's lying right there. Obviously, this is God. So I'll speak for him. God did this for you, David. God did this. Urgency, speaking for God. And finally, Abishai was self-focused. You know what, David? I'll do it. Let me do it. It won't take me two times. I won't have to strike him twice. I'll get it done right now. It's important to note here that although the NIV, which I read tonight, says that Abishai said, I'll, I'll drive, I'll pin him to the ground with my spear, uh, more correct translation would be the spear. And in, indeed, the irony is kind of being revealed. Uh, Abishai was trying to say, let's get this done. We're going to kill this king with his own spear 
in the middle of his own camp. And when his soldiers wake up, they'll see who really is the man. So take note of that. In the situation where they were wronged and believing that something needs to be done about it, Abishai acted with urgency. He spoke for God and he was very self-focused. In fact, he goes even farther to kind of combine God and himself in one uh, mode of thinking. He kind of identifies himself as God's instrument. Obviously, God set this up. Obviously, God did this. Obviously, we're going to show this guy who's really boss, so I'll pin him to the ground right now. I'll do it. Well, David's response to Abishai in verses 9 through 11, it, it mirrors Abishai's words and actions, but it really set things, it sets things in a very different perspective, in proper perspective, actually. So we can learn from David's response in the next couple of verses some good and wise ways to respond in situations where we are very wronged, where we are justified to want revenge, where we are even right, David offers us an alternative to Abishai. So the first thing, in response to Abishai's urgency, uh, we see that David's response is to wait. Don't, he says. Don't destroy him. Wait. Wait. Don't do it. Wait. Just like in chapter 24 in the cave, when David's men said, hey, take the opportunity. The king's over there going to the bathroom. Obviously, this is from God. We're in the cave. Look who just walked in the cave. Obviously, God wants you to do this. Same exact pattern. Do it. Do it now. You'll never get another chance. Get this done. Just like in that situation, David chooses, instead of letting urgency be king, he chooses to remember God's truth. That's hard to do sometimes. Hard to wait, especially when we feel we've indeed been very wronged. Only God can choose, David points out, when his king, his appointed one, is going to come to an end. So I can't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, David says. Don't do it. Wait. Stop. Stop and think for a moment. Remember God, that His way is best. Um, it can be really easy to be very impulsive when we are wronged, when we're hurt some, by someone. Uh, when we see the one who wronged us in a vulnerable position, wide open for attack, whew, I think the stakes go even higher of how hard it is to resist the temptation to be impulsive and urgent in the moment to say a cutting remark, to tear them down to someone, even though the person may not be in the room. When we've discovered the repentance was a joke as well, you see how the stakes get cut. It is hard work sometimes, all the time really, but it's hard work to follow Jesus and to honor him. Here's what I mean by that. It's natural 
to respond with urgency and impulsiveness when we're wronged as human beings. It's supernatural for a heart surrendered to Jesus to wait, to take a breath, to allow God's truth to start speaking louder than my words, to wait, to see what God's opinion on the matter is. Urgency is not something that uh, is always dismissed from the life of a Christian, uh, certainly not. But it seems that impulsivity and urgency in situations where we've been wronged and we really want to get revenge can lead to some dangerous, dangerous things, to words we can't take back, to choices that we make that might be very difficult to recover from. So we learn Abishai, urgent, do it now. David, wait. Although it was difficult, David chose to not be ruled by the urgent. The next thing Abishai practiced was speaking for God. Surely God has brought this moment. It's God. God did it. You want to obey him, don't you? Follow God. Obviously God did this. David takes the correct perspective. He indeed includes God in the equation, but he speaks rightly about God. He doesn't speak for God. In verse 10, as surely as the Lord lives. Uh, that's an oath that would have been common in those days that was saved just for life or death circumstances. All right, so, so David, on purpose, doesn't allow urgency to rule his heart and his choices when he's been wronged, although it's so natural to want to do so. He says, let's wait then he begins to speak rightly about God. He makes room for the Lord to move. Do you see the three possibilities, the three options that he allows that God might choose to do? Maybe the Lord will strike Saul dead. That's what he might choose to do, and, and he may indeed have power to do that, and he will do it if he chooses to. Secondly, maybe his time will come, and his end will happen naturally. Or maybe he'll perish in battle. And that last option is a real foreshadowing uh, to Saul's end. David, a man with a heart just like yours and a heart just like mine, he concludes that, um, that even when he was given an opportunity for vengeance, that vengeance is God's territory. I thank the Lord uh, because I just want to speak truthfully and on honestly. If, you, if you've been wronged, it's easy to say, I know the vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's even harder sometimes to not let urgency take over and want to take advantage of our enemy when they're vulnerable and get them back, by golly. And, and yet we see in this patient workshop that God has had David in for, for quite a while now. That urgency doesn't have to rule. And that speaking for God, oh, I'll be so careful to ever get in that position. But instead, speak rightly about God. Vengeance is God's territory, not mine. It's about God's timing, not mine. It's about God's plan, not mine. You see, David, even in the moment, not letting his emotions run the day, quietly, 
maybe even with great difficulty, admitting, putting things in proper perspective. There is a God, and I'm not him. There is a God, and I'm not him. And even in this situation where I feel fully justified to get back at this one who has wronged me so horribly, who has shown fake repentance, who has put on a show to say how sorry he is, even now, his way is best. His timing is best. It's not my territory. I, I'm going to surrender that and leave that in God's hands instead of taking it into mine. So Abishai was urgent. David waits. Abishai spoke and assumed he was acting on God's behalf. David, rightly so, concludes that only God is the one who can choose to bring about the righteous decision that needs to be made in regards to Saul. I mean, David concludes even in verse 11, forbid it that I that I would assume that I'm God and think that I could put a hand on God's anointed. I'm not going to do it. I'm going I'm to let the Lord be who he is and I'll be who I am. That's such a better way to live. It's hard. Maybe you see that board meeting coming up, that meeting with your boss who's wronged you, uh, the friend you see on Facebook that just spread horrible things about you, the, the church folks that hurt you deeply, even though they were God's people. Uh, it's real hard to not agree with Abishai. I see an opening, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to pin them to the ground. Boy, I'm going to reveal what really happened. Watch this. I could handle that all in two sentences. Watch me type this. I'm going to stand up in the middle of that meeting and interrupt and watch this. I am God's chosen instrument, obviously, because that person needs to be shown what is right. And I'm the person to do it. It's very easy to walk the path of Abishai. I, I don't stand in condemnation at all. I'm a fellow man on the journey. But thankfully, in the ongoing workshop of David's life, God was teaching him so much wiser things to do. Take a breath. Don't be ruled by the urgent. Don't speak for God so easily. Careful. You know, and allow him to be the one who chooses what happens. David concluded over and over in his life that, that God can be trusted. This is the same one who picked up the stones and slayed that giant soldier. He concluded God can be trusted here. He can be trusted uh, now. Even in a situation standing over King Saul's sleeping body. God's in charge. He knows what's best. So you can almost hear kind of the air come out. <sighs> Abishai, grab the spear. Grab the water jug. Let's go. How essential for us is it, those of us that, that are God's people, to trust that God is, work, is at work still, even when we've been wronged? It's hard. But it's revealed for sure in verse 12 that indeed God was at work. 
It was God's provision. You see it there in verse 12. They were able to sneak into a camp of 3,000 soldiers, go right up to the king and the commander of the army, not because they were fantastic ninjas, not because they were highly skilled at whispering, not just because they had great human endeavor, but it was the Lord, the Bible says, that had put these soldiers and the king and the commander into such a deep sleep that Abishai and David were able to move about pretty freely, were able to speak and have that interchange and carry things without being caught. David sensed God was in it and chose to trust him. Abishai sensed God was in it, but chose to make himself the focus. And if David had agreed with Abishai, ooh, the results would have been very, very different. Perhaps vengeance would have been felt for a while. We got him. Finally got it. But that was not God's plan for David. And it was really essential, David knew, to listen to the Lord. And it's beautiful to see in verse 12 how that, that time in the camp comes to an end that indeed God was at work. Maybe you've had that happen sometimes. How many of you, by a show of hands, um, have found after a very difficult situation that you endured, whether through the words from fellow Christians, something he showed you in his word, or something he just made come alive in your spirit, that God began to show you as you looked back, wow, he really was with me the whole time. I can see it now. Do you see that? And, and maybe even sometimes further where you thought for sure the answer that God wants me to do in this season of being wrong or in talking to my, my son or in talking to my dad or in working out this issue in our marriage or this problem with this unfair boss or these people who, who spread gossip and horrible things about me. You thought in the moment, this surely is what God wants me to do. It's right. And then found out because he was so gracious and he helped you press the brakes instead of the gas pedal that you didn't go flying on into something that would have been made so much worse. And God, in His timing and in His way, brings things into the light as He promises He will and reveals truth of what truly happened. If you're still in that situation now and waiting for that truth to come out, my prayer is that you would know that as David found peace in the midst of the situation in the Lord, in His sovereignty, and His grace, and His faithfulness, and in His control. You don't have to wait till it's all resolved before you can find peace. The Lord is with you in the middle of it. And remember, we are talking about the Lord, the one who indeed knows what it is to be betrayed, to be wronged by those who claim to love Him, to be lied to right to His face. I pray that you would know that if you're in that waiting time, the Lord is with you. The Lord's with you. So in verses 13 through 16, we see David, again, a, a wise leader and a warrior. He retreats to a safe distance before he starts waking people up. And he engages Abner, the sleeping commander. Uh, it implies to us the way he asked the question that he had to call out to Abner several times. As we're told, he was in a deep sleep after all. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? He calls him out. <clears throat> uh, there's really no other way to describe the next couple of verses. You can see it. He calls Abner out big time for his dereliction of duty, for his failure, 
Uh, he even kind of mocks him somewhat, but he's trying to point out the truth. Look what happened. Look around you. Where's the spear and the jug that were sitting by your king's head? Look what you let happen. How close that David truly was to being able to get to the king. <clears throat> You're going to see this as we get near the end of the chapter. But one cool thing to note is that when God is with us in our most difficult of scenarios, and by his grace, we're able to keep trusting him, that residue begins to wear off on other people. Abner knew, as the highly skilled commander of 3,000 highly skilled warriors, that no one's going to sneak into the middle of the camp and stand a foot and a half away from the king's head and steal the spear and the water jug just because they're fantastic warriors. He was beginning to see the residue dripping off David's life. It seems like someone with a capital S is with this guy. Something's going on here that just doesn't happen. Uh, we don't really see much of Abner's response instead of, who are you? Who is this that's talking to the king? And then right into verse 17 through verse 25, the encounter between Saul and David takes place. Saul wakes up, most likely hears this shouting conversation between Abner and David. And he calls out to David with this term of affection again. Is that you, David, my son? David is still acknowledging God's authority. Um, remember that we see in Scripture often that God's authority is sovereign. He alone is the authority, capital A. But then his authority is expressed on earth. He delegates authority. Government officials, bosses, moms and dads, uh, church leaders. We, we see how authority is delegated. And so David, out of his respect and honor for the authority of God, still addresses the delegated authority as he's supposed to, as Saul calls out to him. And he responds back, my Lord and my King. In essence, he just yells out to Saul. Maybe at this point, <clears throat> letting go, because he was human after all, all that pent-up emotion that had just happened. He almost killed him again. <clears throat> and he calls out to Saul, why? Why are you still doing this? Why are you pursuing me? If, if the Lord called you to do this and, and has brought up an issue, he's incited you to chase me and take my life, then, then may somehow God be, be pleased with an act of worship or an offering if God's truly the one calling you to do this, my king. But if men in their schemes and their lying and their slander and their gossip have caused this to happen, then he doesn't even hesitate. May they be cursed. It's time for this to stop. I've done nothing wrong. You've gone so far if it's been done by these men, he says in verse 19, that you've, you've driven me from my land. You've, you've driven me to worship other gods. Um, it would have been a common belief then in those days 
that a forced exchange would take place if someone was forced out of their homeland. Uh, not just giving up their lands and their property and their families and the way of life, but it would push them away from the God that they knew, that therefore they would be expected to, to worship other gods. And so what you hear in this pleading or, or pleading to the king is, is David just saying, you just, this is messing with my whole life. This is even beginning to cause me to question at times how I'm going to continue to have this solid relationship with God. You've driven me from my homeland. I can't rest at night. I can't do anything. You continue to pursue me. David refers to himself as a small flea or a partridge. The common tiny little bird in that day that would just kind of hop around. Um, the illustration here is really kind of like a pheasant. Have any of you ever been pheasant hunting? Ever tried that? It's pretty cool. I've walked and scared a bunch of pheasants up. Usually it's through tall grass. So you know when you come up on a pheasant, what they, what they do? I mean, they just, they just flitter away, flitter away. And, and that's what David is trying to compare himself to, this small bird that when the mighty king comes near, he just flitters away and stays far enough ahead of him. And this is beginning to consume all of Saul's life. He's, he's got a kingdom to run, and he's chasing after this young man. And David's just saying, why? Is it God himself? Is it men? And a huge detour. Turn, turn to your neighbor and say, huge I want to make a joke here. You know, I want to say it's going to be huge, right? A huge detour, amazing detour happens in verse 21. Uh, remember I had said David's example of honoring God, even when he's wronged, was beginning to rub off on others. Uh, well, here's where it comes full circle. Because this is now the second exchange between Saul and David where David could have easily killed him and he chose not to. You know, please see this, my king. I, I could have done it again and I chose not to again. And in three words, it's a huge detour in David's rub-off effect on Saul. You read those three words of what he said? Saul said, I have sinned. Now, that's a little deeper than the previous encounter. You've been kind to me. I was wrong to you. You've been doing only good. I've been doing wrong. But man, here he really takes ownership because remember, sin then even brings in the connotation that I didn't just do wrong to you, David. I'm doing wrong in God's eyes. I have sinned. Uh, he sees his own sin. He takes note of David's noble and God-honoring behavior, and he takes full ownership of it. Uh, he even goes a little bit further. I've acted like a fool. I've made a huge error. And he repents again. No further harm guaranteed. And as we talked about in the beginning of tonight's study, Saul and David would never see each other again after this point. I want to ask you a question. Do you see the invitation that Saul gives to David? Do you see it there? I've sinned. I've committed great error. I've been a fool. 
What invitation does he call out to David from across the way? What's that? Yeah, right. I just want you to know it. It's a simple invite, but it's powerful. Yeah, there it is. Verse 21, right? Yep. Come back over here, buddy. Come back over here. I was wrong. I was a fool. I've sinned. Here's an interesting point. If I show up tonight as your Uber driver, and I do drive Uber, uh, woo, if I had a lot of interesting encounters and exchanges, um, just trying to make uh, a little bit of extra funds and uh, driving around. Um, some of the conversations have led to talking about the Lord. Some of them get in and are just very silent. I don't want to speak to you. I just want to focus on my phone. Some get in and they are totally wasted. They've been drinking a lot. And you know, I can honestly say to you at that point, the Lord's always been in the car with me. How cool is it, Ralph, that you get to make sure they get home safely tonight? Some of them are young enough to be my daughter. My girl's 23. No, I'm even younger. I don't sit there and look in the rearview mirror and go, how, how disgusting, how horrible, how rude. I, I know it's just Ubering, but I truly believe that you know, God has been able to use me. You know, I spent 25 years in pastoral ministry. And sometimes, sometimes it can feel like, since it's been a few years since I've been out and doing some other pursuits, uh, that uh, the only way God can really use me is if I have that title in front of my name. You know, if we're not careful, even when we're serving Jesus, we can get really caught up in titles or positions or places of status or power or whatever it may be. Uh, the Lord's been so faithful to keep shaping my heart, just like he does David's. He doesn't give up. Sometimes I'm a hard piece of clay to work with. Amen? Anyone else? Sometimes I'm very soft and pliable. Sometimes it seems in, in some areas the Lord has to keep bringing me back to that teaching point. Listen, son, this is something that has to go. And one of the things is thinking you've got to be defined by a title. Because I can use you in an Uber ride just as much as I can on a Sunday morning when you're preaching. It's been really cool to see how he does that. But if I showed up tonight, you had a nice time at the mall, and it's 9.30, and you call me to be your Uber. Hi, my name's Ralph. Hi, it's nice to meet you. And you get in the car. And then you begin to tell by my erratic driving that I've been drinking heavily. I'm driving all over the road. I'm driving 95 miles an hour. I'm cutting people off. I'm up on people's lawns. Five times you literally feared for your life and thought you were going to meet Jesus right in that moment until I finally get you home and I drop you off. Maybe you swipe and you don't give me five-star rating for that night. I come back the next night. Kind of creepy, but I remembered where I dropped you off. But I'm really repentant. I'm so sorry about what happened last night. I got my drink and it went out of hand. You used to have some problems. Now I get, and I tell you this story. So to make it up to you, would you get back in the car with me? I want to take you on a ride. Here's an important life truth. Forgiveness can take place even without me getting back in the car with you. 
Saul called out to David, come on over here, bud. Huh. Even though David had learned what it meant to let God be God, he had also learned wisdom. If indeed Saul was sincere in his repentance this time, he was brand new in it. He was only up to his knees in it. He hadn't been swimming around in the deep end of the pool to really come under that strong conviction of repentance and owning it. And of course, the full act of repentance is to turn and live differently, to change one's mind and think differently. So perhaps Paul, Saul was sincere, but David in his wisdom from the Lord said, no, nah, I'm not coming over there. Have one of your young men come get the spear. Here it is. It's a real important life truth. It's a simple one. It's easy to miss. But Saul did call out to him while he said, I've sinned, I've erred, I've been such a fool. Come on over here, David. And David ignores that invitation, doesn't get back in the car with him again. He said, ah, I'll acknowledge that God is at work. I hear your words, and I, I'll even honestly hope that they're sincere. Awesome. But I'm not coming back over to the camp with you. Part of developing emotionally and emotional maturity as a Christ follower is learning to have healthy separation when we need to, even with those we're trying to forgive who have wronged us. It may be that someone who has wronged us wants to engage right back into the relationship with us. Can we just pick up where we left off? And we all know that uh, that's, that's just not the way it goes sometimes. There may be indeed times where the Lord calls you to engage in that relationship again. How can we not when it's our spouse, the one that we're forgiving, or it's our children or our parents? But there are other relationships that begin to stretch out in church life and friendships and work that maybe the Lord will help us to also practice discernment and wisdom. Listen, my daughter, my son, you can indeed forgive because you're called to forgive as the Lord forgave you. But that doesn't mean you have to embrace everyone right back this close again. There are some you have to have wisdom and have it arm's length. There are sometimes you have to stand across the valley a little bit and have your conversation from this far away because you know if you go right back into it, that's going to be unhealthy. And so that's an important lesson I think we learned from David. Easy to miss. It's quick. Come over here, David. Mm. Have someone coming else get the spear. So the spear represented Saul's authority. The jug of water would have represented life. It's intriguing that David says, the water's mine. <laughs> it's almost as if he had a peace from the Lord. Uh, you didn't get much from this. Uh, and here's the spear back. But the water's mine. And may you be reminded, King Saul, when you're thirsty in a couple of hours, you're going to have to borrow someone else's water jug because the one who's following truly after God's heart could have taken you out, but he didn't. So maybe humble yourself and be thankful. I think it's a pretty powerful image that's happening there. So David doesn't run back over for a bear hug. He practices wisdom. And then we get to verses 23 and 24, and we're almost at the end of the chapter. I want to read these verses aloud as we kind of come to the conclusion of this story in, in David's life. Verses 23 and 24. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness 
and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. When we choose to let God have his way over our way, even when we're wronged, part of the handholds that we can hold on to that are sure and will never pass away is the convicting truth that the Lord will reward us in due time for our faithfulness. David was convinced of that. It helped him sleep at night, literally. We see often in the Psalms, I bring to mind your statutes, your promises on my bed at night. There is a conviction of knowing the Lord will see our faithfulness that can really lead to a lot of peace-filled living in the days that we live on earth. That there is a God and I'm not Him, that simple theological reality applies to even situations when we're wronged. If he can be trusted to make the universe, if he can be trusted to purchase my life for the death of his son and to conquer death itself, then he can be trusted even when my heart is broken by those who have wronged me. And so I can even release that to him with a conviction that he'll honor me with his faithfulness. And even as verse 24 says, that he will demonstrate that my life is valuable to him and to others. That my life still has value, even if others might communicate that it does not. The last couple of verses, verses 25 through 26, Saul blesses David. He had already spoken several times in previous chapters how he knew that God had chosen David to be the next king. He knew that his days were numbered, that his kingship was coming to an end soon. And so he blesses him and he departs and they never see each other again. So I wanted to conclude by going back to that 23rd Psalm that I referred to earlier where David described the Magah, the, the wagon ruts, the, the carved out paths around the camp where Saul was at. He uses it in Psalm 23, these carved out paths that you put in front of me for righteousness sake. Aren't you glad? Maybe you've heard it before. I just want to give you some good news again. Um, the Lord doesn't stand up at the top of the hole that you might find yourself in where the light is and says, come on. Buck up. Get up here. Work harder. That's not the story of the gospel. Instead, the Lord enters into our darkness and helps us find our way out. And yes, that includes the big things that he does. He redeems us and purchases us and adopts us and forgives us. Those big things, absolutely. But sometimes when we're in the dark, especially when someone has broken us, sometimes it's just getting out of bed the next morning. Jesus is able to help you do that. For he's with you in the darkness. And David was learning this over and over and over again. 
And certainly we see it in Psalm chapter 23, the 23rd Psalm. You know how it begins, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Isn't that intriguing? The sovereign Lord in this encounter with Saul, who can be counted on to make things right, who can be counted on to seek vengeance if he chooses to do so, that mighty king, I have also now come to know him as my gentle shepherd who, who leads me beside still waters and, and makes me lie down. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be made to, lay, to lie down. <laughs> we like to go, 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 go. But a good shepherd knows when we need rest. He says, lay down, lay down now. Lay down. It's time to rest. Um, when we're wronged, and we feel that we're right, it can be very easy to have a lot of imaginary conversations. If, boy, if I get a chance to talk to so-and-so, you just wait, I'm gonna just, boom! <laughs> and a lot of resentment can build up and stress and unsettledness. Maybe we even to question God's goodness. We become exhausted in our faith because we're allowing this idea that we need to handle this because it's wrong to rule us more than just letting it be God who does it. God's timing, not mine. God's plan, not mine. It's interesting, David says an intriguing thing, and I wonder if he had this on his mind when he wrote the part of Psalm 23. I'm just paraphrasing here, but I wonder if he remembered this night in the camp with all his enemies around him. Remember he said, Lord, you're such a good shepherd that you even prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a table. The imagery here is a very powerful one. David knew that his shepherd would always lead him to life. He knew that his shepherd the same sovereign God who delivered him in the cave that night with Saul or in this battlefield night with Saul and Goliath and on and on. He found him to be faithful. David knew this truth. He, he knew his God. So I just want you to think of this table. The imagery here is a powerful one. Even though we're surrounded by brokenness, even though it still has not been resolved, the one who've wronged us, it's still there. Maybe it's being worked out in our marriage or in our job or with our friends, but it's still not resolved. Even in the midst of people saying things and doing things that are so very hurtful, the Lord invites us to his table. He sets a table for us, and he invites us to come have fellowship with him. That's powerful to remember. A reminder from the very first few minutes of our Bible study tonight, we do not have to wait until full resolution before we can experience the peace of God, even in situations when we've been wronged. So he invites us to the table. He has conversation and fellowship with us. He offers us grace and wisdom, sometimes just enough strength to get out of bed the next morning, sometimes a promise that he brings back to mind. And he sups with us. He shares this meal with us at the table, even in the presence of all this stuff going on. It would be a mistake to think that we have to wait for all the enemies to be gone and all the hard things to be over. Then I get to go to the Lord's table and have peace. 
Ultimately, one day, indeed, that will occur when we are with him. But aren't you thankful that instead of shouting down to us in the hole, he's right there with us, and he's setting up a table, even in the presence of our enemies. That's what he did for David that night. I'm here, David. I know this is so tempting right now. You've even got people telling you this is what God wants. But wait. I've got a plan I'm still working out. I'll take care of this. This action that needs to happen for Saul is way bigger than you, David. It needs bigger shoulders. Only my shoulders are big enough to carry it. You don't understand everything that's happening right now. That's okay because I can handle it. You just trust me. You choose to honor me. I will not forget you. It's uh, important to remember as well. Remember, David didn't always make good choices. He blew it big time in his life. But even then, if you look at Psalm 51, as he cries out to the Lord, his shepherd, his king, even though that sin had weighed so heavily upon him where he couldn't even lift up his head, he had found the Lord to be the lifter of his head, the one who cleansed him and forgave him. So it's good to pay attention to what God is doing in times when we are wronged. It's the polar opposite of what we might think. God hasn't left us. God is still at work. It might seem crazy, but we can know the Lord has been there. He knows indeed what it feels like, and he is walking with us. Imagine the heart of the king, the mind of the king that was being shaped in David as he went through his experiences, killing bears and lions with his bare hands as a shepherd, <clears throat> killing a giant, sparing a man's life who deserved it big time. All his troubles could have been over, it seemed. The ongoing workshop of God was faithful in David's life. Uh, God's timing, not ours. God's way, God's glory, God's plan, not ours. Yes, even when we're wronged. It's an important lesson from God's word tonight. Before I close in prayer, I just wanted to see if anyone had any thoughts or questions uh, as, we, uh, as we conclude. Hey, Ralph, it, uh, it says all scripture is inspired by God, and it's just amazing to me that David always recognized the, the anointing. Yeah. It was precious to him. Now, he failed in a lot of other areas, but he always recognized the, the anointing that God had on whomever he had it on. That's powerful. And then in Romans, it says to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's right. And these other characters weren't, were fleshly. They just yep. desired things of the flesh and always led to death. Yep. Great point. He always loved God's anointed in God's word and truth. Amen. And he let it speak. He let it speak primarily. I love that. That's beautiful. Any other thoughts or questions? I figured those 3,000 men must have been snoring really 
Yeah, it is scary. That's a great point. <laughs> I wonder if they had had a big meal before they all went to sleep, or uh, must have been sawing wood. That's for sure. Must have been snoring deeply. <laughs> they had turkey. That's a great point. <laughs> What's that trip, tryptophan, or what is that called? Put them all to sleep. They had a big turkey feast. Well, I'll be hanging out after if you want to talk a little bit. May I close in prayer for us tonight? It was a pleasure to be with you. Uh, next week, chapter 27. Where in the world does David go from here? Uh, we'll see where, where he heads next, next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for understanding when our hearts are broken, when we've been wronged. And, and thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can learn to not be controlled by the urgent or by just our feelings. Um, but that by your grace, we can learn to let you have your way and your say. Um, I, I thank you, Lord, that there are just some things that you say are your territory because they are too big for us to grasp. <coughs> I pray for any of my brothers and sisters in the house tonight uh, who are heavy hearted and heavy laden, perhaps being able to relate to the situation that David found himself in. I pray for healing. I pray for freedom. I pray that you would wrap your mighty arms around them. Uh, Lord, as was mentioned earlier, would, would you give us a love for your word? a love for the way you do things. I just thank you that you didn't leave us alone when you called us to live a righteous life. I thank you for climbing into my darkness, into our darkness, to help us walk out of it into the light. And Lord, I thank you, as David discovered, I thank you that uh, we can sit at your table even when we're surrounded by the enemy, even when things are not great and they're hard. I pray your blessing on these friends of mine. Uh, please see them home safely tonight. And uh, we thank you that your word is always faithful and always true. In Jesus' name, amen.